You're listening to a podcast from Reality Honolulu. For more information or ways to get involved in the life of the church, visit realityhonolulu.com. Thanks for listening. We're covering kind of a lot of verses today. We're actually finishing up Mark chapter 9. Um, but it's really good. And excited for how God's going to speak to us. Um, why don't you read with me? If you don't have a Bible, I do have it up on the PowerPoint. Um, Mark 9, verses 30 through 50 this morning. So our text says this. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know that he was there, for he wanted to spend more time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of his enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying, however, and they were afraid to ask him what he meant. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled in a house, Jesus asked his disciples, what were you discussing out on the road? But they didn't answer because they had been arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called the 12 disciples over to him and said, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. Then he put a little child among them. Um, Taking that child in his arms, he said to them, anyone who welcomes a little child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes not only me, but also my father who sent me. Verse 38. John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone using your name to cast out demons, but we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. Don't stop him, Jesus said. No one who performs a miracle in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. Anyone who is not against us is for us. And if anyone gives you even a cup of water because you belong to the Messiah, I tell you the truth, that person will surely be rewarded." But if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter into eternal life with only one hand than go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal hell with two feet. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. Not a good thing. For everyone will be tested with fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live in peace with each other. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this time that we do get together and for you to teach us from it. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd you do just that, that you administer and teach us and equip us by your word, that you would give us understanding, that you would help us to understand what it is that this means and the concepts and even some of the strong language that you're using here, Lord, would you, would you minister to us what this means? And not only that, not only would we understand it with our mind, that, that intellectually we would grow, but that you would connect it to our hearts, to the innermost Uh, of our being, that we would, that there'd be deep transformative heart work, that our hearts would be transformed by these truths this morning, that we would be a people that are a servant 
uh, to others and that we would be a people that, that grow in holiness, that we um, reject sin, that we repent of sin and that we walk in holiness as your sons and daughters. And so Lord, would you help me to communicate these truths, these, these concepts, these precepts today from your word. God, we ask that it be your words and not mine, um, that you would really bless our time, free us from any distractions and everything else that's going on in our lives. We wanna lay that down and ask that you would have your way with us. Um, we wanna hear from you, Lord. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a lot happening here. There's a lot of strong language, a lot of scary things, crazy things that Jesus says. But we're just going to walk through it, and um, it's actually all connected. These 20 verses are all connected in, in a series of ways. But first off, what happens in our text this morning is once again, Jesus is reminding his disciples of his true mission. Like the reason why he came was partly to do all these miracles and to give these teachings, but it was absolutely the primary purpose was to die on the cross for humanity. And what he says here in these first couple verses is actually like the second of three times he's doing this just in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Over and over, he's reminding them for the first time now really plainly why he's come to earth. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He stepped out of heaven into humanity to do something. And his main mission was to die on the cross, but then rise again three days later. And it's just so significant that even these disciples, even the ones that are closest to him, doing life with him, you think they should understand most everything, or they should understand what he's saying the most. In verse 32, it says they still didn't understand what he was saying. However, they were so afraid that they didn't even ask him what he meant, right? But Jesus, once again, he, he starts off this little, this little part in our text this morning by reminding the disciples of his true mission. And then what happens is there's this like bickering match. There's this like argument between the disciples, um, specifically between, you know, Peter, James, and John. These are the inner circle guys. And... They're having this discussion, and, um, and it's funny what they're arguing about. I mean, right, Jesus just says this, like, pretty profound thing. Like, I'm going to have to die on the cross for all of humanity, just so you know, and I'm going to rise again. And they, like, go on walking, and they start talking amongst themselves, like, who's the best out of us? Right? Who's the greatest? Who's, like, the most amazing disciple? I am. No, I am. Who's going to, who's, who's the best? Who's the greatest? Right? Jesus says, I'm going to die. They start walking and they say, who's the greatest? Right? They're still there. They're missing it. Um, in, in a very silly way, but in a profound way, they're, they're kind of missing it. And what happens here is that Jesus calls them together into, this, into a home. And they're in Capernaum now. That's not Jesus' birthplace, right? Um, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, Nazareth. But Capernaum was like Jesus' home base of ministry. Capernaum is at the, the north um, side of the Sea of Galilee, and it's a very small town. It's Peter's hometown. Most likely, this is Peter's home, a lot of commentators would say, and Jesus pulls them together in the home, and, you know, he has this dialogue, like, what were you guys talking about on the road? Obviously, Jesus is God. He knows what they're talking about, but he begins to teach them. He begins to address this argument they're having, 
And it's kind of a big deal because it's a heart issue. They aren't just like flippantly saying like, which one of us follows Jesus the best? I mean, it's a real deep heart issue that they're fighting over. Like who of us is the greatest? And Jesus brings them into the house and he kind of sits them down and he even tells them, don't tell anybody about, I don't want crowds coming and ruining this. This is like a, like a come to Jesus moment, literally. This is a come to Jesus, like I can't have anyone in here. I need to bring you guys together as my inner circle, as my disciples, and I need to teach you what you're missing right now. Like in a really loving, caring way, Jesus brings them in. He says, what were you guys discussing? None of them wanted to talk about it because now they're like ashamed when they're addressed about it. And, and he begins discussing um, the, these concepts. But the truth is, if these disciples were to carry on like Jesus's mission to the world, these are the guys that were going to spread Christianity to the ends of the earth. These are the guys. And they're fighting about who's the best. If they were going to continue to be Jesus' disciples and succeed in this mission, in this commission that Jesus has given them, they they have to get over this. They have to learn the lesson of servanthood. They have to understand that this thing is not about them and it's about Jesus and they have to learn it well. And Jesus knew that, that the church... Uh, would never survive unless their attitudes changed. Because that's what happened. Like Jesus died, he rose again, and the baton was passed to these guys in the early church. So it was these 12, and then the upper room, you know, when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church at Pentecost, it was like 120 people. From there, it, it grew. But this, these were the guys. These were, these were the 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 guys that were carrying the baton to the ends of the earth, and in order for it to happen, they had to get over themselves. And so Jesus brings them in, and he has this conversation. But the truth is, is that we also still struggle with this question. We may not say it in the same way, but we are so concerned about ourselves. We are so wrapped up, whether we think it or not, with us and what we can get. And even when it comes to Christianity, there's a sense that that we're in it to get stuff for ourselves, right? We're in it for eternal life. We're in it to increase my health because Jesus can make me healthy. We're we're in it to, to, to elevate our prestige and our power. And even though we may not say that, subtly, a lot of us probably struggle with this selfish, wrapped up in ourselves attitude. And it happens in and out of the church. We have this tendency uh, as, as, as sinners, as people that have a sinful, independent nature, that we want to even make the good things of God about ourselves. And that's what's happening here, right? Jesus is like proclaiming the gospel. I'm going to die and, and, and rise from the dead. Instead of them being like, whoa, what does that mean? Like, that's a, what does that mean? They're like, who's the best? Which one of us is the best? Like completely making it about them and not making it about the Lord. We're so good. We're really great at it, making everything based upon me, about us. What's funny is um, my five-year-old daughter, she just turned five this week, Eva. Um, love her to death. Uh, she is so competitive, though. Like at an early age, she always has been like, especially now she's like getting faster and she's getting more coordinated, especially with like physical things. She, she's super like, dad, I'm faster than you. Let's race right now. Or, 
she's really like make, like discovering the world too, like specifically, um, you know, how fast, but then also like how tall people are. She's like really, um, really like caught up with this, right? And so for her, she goes to the class. She's like, well, I'm five now, so I'm taller than that person, right? She goes over to a friend's house, like, so I'm taller than them, right? Because I'm older now. And there's like this super competitive nature. I don't win this contest a lot because I'm not tall. So she, a lot of times, you know, is like, hey, dad, are you taller? I'm like, no, no, I'm not taller. And trips her out a little bit because I think she thinks tall equals you're better. Um, so I, I, I'm humbled every day by that one. But, <clears throat> but what I do have going for me is she does think I'm the strongest man in the whole world. And it's amazing right now. For whatever reason, I think I've, you know, like, hey, I can do that. She just thinks like, hey, I can lift anything. And she's like, goes around and she always is like, dad, can you lift that? Can you lift that? I was, you know, mowing the lawn the other day. I had to move our trampoline and she came out and she saw the trampoline move. She's like, dad, did you lift up the trampoline? (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I I pulled it. I moved it. She's like, oh my gosh. Um... She's like enamored, like you're the greatest ever. And she always like, you know, goes over to her friend's houses or hangs out with kids of yours. And she's like, are you stronger than their data? Are you stronger? She's like super competitive. Who's the best? Who's the greatest? It's gotten hard though, because she's up the ante. Like we're walking down the street and she'll say, dad, you can lift that car, right? (laughs) And I'm like, I don't want to let her down. Well, no, cars are heavy. I don't think that one. And then she'll go like, but the tree, you can pick up the tree. (laughs) It's really cute. But even at an early age, like she's wrapped up with like, who's the greatest? Who's the best? Like I am, I'm the, you are, like it's gotta be one of us, right dad? Um, and she's having to learn, no, it's not all about us and let's learn this, this truth. But anyway, these disciples in a very different way, but in a very similar way uh, are doing the same thing. They are arguing about who is the best, who is the greatest, who is like closer to Jesus, who has more prestige, who's more religious, who's more spiritual. And Jesus answers them. He doesn't even deal with it. Like, I'm not dealing with any of you. Let me just teach you this concept. And the concept is, is his answer. He says in verse 35, whoever wants to be first must take last place and be the servant of everyone else. How about that answer? You guys want to be the greatest? Well, you need to be last to be the greatest. You need to be the lowest, the most humble. You need to be at the end of the line. You need to be not talking about being the greatest, and you need to serve everyone. That is a radical, was and is a radical statement. It is very countercultural. That is against everything that our culture and our society would tell us. If you want to be the greatest, then you're the greatest. Not you're the last and be the last one and serve everyone. Our human nature, our, human, our natural human instinct is to dominate. But Jesus here is saying, in order to be the first, you must be the last. And that's the first lesson that we can learn today from our text is this idea of servanthood and humility is what Jesus very clearly puts out this morning. And what's neat and what's special and what's profound is that Jesus is the perfect, most amazing example of servanthood, right? Even on like the eve of the crucifixion, the night before he would go to the cross, what did he do? He gathered his disciples and he was the one that washed their feet. 
He's the one that got down and, and, and he, he's the one that washed their feet in humble servitude. We see that in John 13, 14 through 16. It says, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I say to you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Jesus modeled this. He modeled this by the way in which he served humanity, the way he served the disciples, and ultimately the way in which he went to the cross. Next chapter, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. You guys, I'm sure all know this, but Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life for a ransom for many. Jesus' example of servanthood is what took him to the cross. And so when Jesus is speaking these truths to his disciples, his inner circle, he isn't just speaking um, from afar. He's not just speaking of, you should do that. I'm this, this high heavenly king that will never get my hands dirty, that would never serve others. You should do that. No, he led in servanthood. He is the model to which we follow, that we know how to serve, that even God humbled himself to a man and he lived amongst us and he served humanity by giving his life for them. That's the God that we serve. This is the Jesus that is speaking that if we want to be great, if we want to be something, that we need to serve others. We need to be the last in order to be first. And regardless of who we are, all of us are called to servanthood. It's, there's no um, exceptions to this rule. It doesn't matter your profession, um, it doesn't matter what you do or where you came from or who you are, we are all called to be servants in, in our lives, it, amongst our family members and our best friends and in our workplaces. And this can be really hard in those contexts because even in, in the idea of business, when you're trying to build a business or you're a boss or you're trying to... Um, you're trying to lead, or there's very difficult, complex areas in our lives, but in every one of them, regardless of what you are and what you do and what position you are, um, kids, no kids, single, married, doesn't matter what you are and who you are, we are called to serve those people, to be servants, even if we're leaders, even if we're bosses, even if we're in charge, so to speak. Even in those areas, we're called to serve those around us. And so we have to ask ourselves, in those spheres of influence where God has placed you, are we modeling humility when we deal with these people? Are we preferring them above ourselves? I.e., are we being servants to them? And right, that, that could take some time to figure out what even that means. Like, how do I do that? But that's the challenge here. The challenge isn't just to lord it over people and exercise your authority and you should just, just go and do what you need to do. It's, hey, we need to serve other people. Right? Think about the two greatest commandments. What are they? Well, number one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Okay. What's number two? Love your neighbor as yourself. The way in which we love our neighbor, Jesus speaks of them, is serve them. And I don't mean just neighbor like the person that lives next to you. Neighbor is anybody else that comes into contact with your life. We're to serve them the way that Christ served us. 
And then what happens is, is he lays this out, he, he, and he uses this parable with this child, right? He brings this child on his lap, and he uses this parable. And he describes the way in which we should treat these children just the same way Jesus treats them. And to really understand the significance of this parable is in Jesus' words. Uh, the commentator R. Kent Hughes explains it well. I have it up here. He says this. The power of this enacted parable to the disciples lies in this, in the Aramaic language which Jesus spoke. Child and servant are the same word. Thus, Jesus was saying that the disciples must receive his children, other servants and disciples, with the open arms and love with which he was holding that child. There was to be no thought of um, precedence, who was better than whom, but simple, open-armed affection. Jesus said that when they did this in his name, they welcomed not only Jesus himself, but him who sent me, God the Father. The lesson here is that we, as believers, as disciples, as followers, are to receive all of God's people as we do children with no thought of their accomplishments or their influence or their fame or their gifts, but simply because they're his children. What this does is it should, in our own hearts, rule out this idea that we're only seeking to love and care for the powerful and the influential people in our lives, or we're only going to love people and serve people if we can get something from them. That is so not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is you need to love everyone as they are, the way I would, regardless of status, regardless of what they do and what they are. This was a warning about neglecting the simple, humble, and ordinary. Uh, the book of James in chapter 2 goes all into this, how we should not put more precedence on people's wealth or their lack of it or how they dress or how they don't dress, homeless, not homeless. Like, there should be no, um, no, no difference. There should be no difference in who we love. And what we see here and what we see in scripture is that we have like a divine mandate to be lovers of everyone and especially those in Christ's body. And this is what Jesus is doing here. He said, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about me and my kingdom and the people that you're comparing yourself to. Don't love them. Serve them. Serve them as I would serve them and be done with it. That's what he's doing here. And what's so interesting, right, is Think, think about this, right? The disciples are hearing this. They're getting kind of like rebuked. They're getting corrected. They've just been like arguing this really silly thing outside. But what do they do next in verse 38? What do they do next? Uh, so John hears this and he says to Jesus, and he starts talking about like this scenario about this other person that's casting out demons in the name of Jesus and he's telling Jesus, hey, there was this guy doing this, and we told him to stop because he wasn't in our group. <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me? You're kidding me. Did you hear anything I just said? I know Jesus didn't say that, but that's, that's where I feel like we should go. Right? I mean, John right here, he's almost tattletaling about another Christian that's being used by the Lord. It's, it's not a simple thing to cast out a demon. No one can just do this. 
This is by the authority of Jesus. This Christian is walking around and, and people are being freed from demons. And the disciples go up and say, stop. Stop doing that. You're not in this group, so you should stop doing that. I mean, right, because he wasn't in our group. What's interesting is that um, this just stirs up so many insecurities, I feel like, in the disciples. Because if you remember last week, this is the very thing that the disciples had trouble doing. They couldn't do it themselves. They failed to cast out demons, and Jesus had to kind of come in and fix the situation. And he told them, these ones can only come out by prayer. What's happening is other people now, they're being effective. They're being used by the Lord, and the disciples are getting jealous. That's exactly what's happening here. They are insecure. They are not okay with other people doing well, and they're stopping them. They're stopping them from being used by the Lord, and and they're making it all about themselves. And man, this is so ever-present in the church and amongst Christians today, unfortunately, is the jealousy of others' success. I've been a pastor in a church for long enough to seeing the ugliness of it. I've fallen in the trap myself, right? Of, 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 you know, we're so concerned with our thing and our church and our ministry that instead of being reminded of the kingdom of God, when we see churches growing and God moving, instead of like being like, praise God, like amen, like keep it going, there's a, t- there's a tendency in Christianity to make it all about ourselves and nitpick and be like, no, they're doing it wrong. No, no, no. That's exactly what's happening here. The disciples, because of their own insecurities, are falling into jealousy to the point that they actually told these other believers that were being used by the Lord to stop what they were doing. I mean, right? This is crazy. But it's not out of the ordinary because we are prone to this ourselves. See, the big picture here is that demons are being cast out in the name of Jesus, but because the disciples had their own insecurities, they they stopped the work of the Lord in a sense. And Jesus just corrects them and says, do not do that. Like, do, do not do that. Because it comes back to this idea, this concept that we need to humbly accept and embrace our brothers and sisters in Christ despite differences. This is Jesus' whole point, right? The criteria for ministry isn't like style or a certain tradition or even denomination, but is Jesus' name being lifted up and glorified? That's what we're supposed to rejoice in. We're really good at nitpicking. We're really good at being like the disciples and anything different, anything out of the ordinary, anything that's not in our group, we despise and and, and we don't want to be part of. And Jesus is trying to open up their minds. He's trying to open up their, their eyes and their minds to the fact that these are my kids, these are my children, and you're to love them and serve them because I did. And he's trying to break down these walls and these barriers and this selfishness that they've built up. And for us this morning, as, as, we, as we hear this, it's only right that all of us, we, we ask the Lord to search our own hearts, to search our own motives. Like, Lord, where am I being jealous of others' success? Where am I wanting to be served rather than to serve others? 
right? And what, what this should do, this, this parable this morning, should gently call us, if we're in the wrong, to repentance. To rather than to dominate, that we would surrender that, that we would, that we would give that up, that we would have the Lord redeem that and make us servants. That we would live and act in humility with those around us. That's, that's what Jesus is trying to get at. You guys see that? It's good. It's really good. The second thing that we can learn today is Jesus kind of turns the dime real quick. It's connected. But we can learn and grow. And the lesson that we see here today is of sanctification and holiness. Sanctification and holiness. See, Jesus turns the heat up here. There's some pretty serious language. I mean, he talks about hell like several times in like very descriptive language. Like, right, it's really weird. But like the maggot that never dies and the fire that never burns out. And like, it's just a horrible place. This text, among others, is like the imagery that we think of, I think, when, when, we, when, we, when we go to like, oh, what hell is going to be like? This horrible, horrific um, place. And it, and it is. But what Jesus does, even the language here, is a paraphrase. Or it's even a copy of his famous Sermon on the Mount. So the Sermon on the Mount was like, the, it's the longest recorded sermon we have of Jesus. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And in a nutshell, what it is, is the attitudes of people in the kingdom of God. Like what we should live like. It's the blueprints. It covers almost every facet of life. Like murder and divorce and sin and adultery and like, I mean, everything. It covers it all. And Jesus takes the same wordage. And depending on time, either, you know, timing... He either spoke the sermon after this or he took this from the Sermon on the Mount. But nonetheless, these concepts are spoken about in multiple gospels. And they're really important. And what it comes down to, the gist of the last part of chapter 9 here, is Jesus is speaking of the severity of sin. And specifically, how ruthless we should be with it in our own lives. He does not sugarcoat it. He does not minimize it. He does not um, make it sound better for us. He says, sin is rebellion. It's ugly. It's nasty. It's destructive and it's deadly. And I don't know if you saw here, he says, do whatever you can to be freed of sin. And he uses like the human body as an analogy, right? He says, if sin is... He says here, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. No questions asked. Now, he's not saying that literally, but you could do that. You could. But he's using it metaphorically here to saying, if parts of your body, if things in your life are causing you to sin, amputate it with no questions asked. Don't think of it. Don't double take. Don't spend time thinking about it. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out right away. Deal with it. What he's doing is he's reminding us of the life and death situation sin is and the effects of sin are. And the thing is, is he's doing this to remind the disciples, to remind us that we too need to treat sin as the very worst kind of evil, the worst disease, something that will not only corrupt us, but ultimately kill us, if not dealt with. 
Jesus literally says, cut it out, amputate it, or else it will kill us. And there, there's no hidden meaning there. There's no tricky, like read a handful of books and you'll understand what Jesus is saying here. He says, sin is so deadly. It's so destructive. The effects are that bad that you cannot just let it go. You can't just keep on living in sin or, you know what, that's okay. If anything, Jesus is trying to destroy this idea of minimizing or justifying our sin that we're so good at. Because that's what we do. We, we're really good at justifying sin. I know that I am. That's not as bad. Or that's kind of sin. Or I don't do it all the time. So, or there's no tangible effects. So really, is it that bad? If we're honest with ourselves, in a lot of ways, we probably do this. We either justify sin or we minimize sin. But what Jesus is saying is he's leveling the playing field here. He says sin is sin, and it is. There's not like a greater sin to God. All sin is just rebellion to God. It's a disobedience. Doesn't matter what you did. Does it? We have temporal, there's temporal consequences, right? Like if I tell a lie, there's a consequence to the person I told it to or what I did. But if I murdered a person, then I would go to jail maybe forever, right? There's different temporal consequences, but when God looks at sin, he sees it the same. He sees it as rebellion, and he sees it actually in more of a caring father's heart. This thing's going to destroy you. This thing's going to hurt you. It's like uh, your, your little kid or when you were a kid, when your parents told you, don't touch the fire. Why? It's going to hurt you. Well, what if I just light my arm on fire? Well, it's going to burn you. And ultimately, if you let it, it'll kill you. You don't, you don't tell maybe your kid that story. But you get the idea it's, a, it's this father's heart mentality that sees the whole picture, that knows that sin is not God's design, but in the garden it started and it wrecked everything. So not only is Christ calling us to humility here, but he's calling us to holiness. Not only is he calling us to servanthood, but he's calling us to sanctification. See, Jesus died to forgive sin. Like, that's why he did. Sin is that big of a problem. It's that big of a roadblock that God had to send his son and his son had to die so that we could be forgiven of our sins. And what that did was give us freedom from the bondage and the power of sin. But the tricky part is, is that we still live in a fallen, sin-filled world. And God's spirit that he gives us, right? The moment we're saved, Ephesians 1 says that when we're saved, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit as a promise of our inheritance, right? So the Holy Spirit lives in us. And what the Spirit of God wants to do is it wants to glorify God. It wants to honor God with everything that we are. It wants to bear the fruit of the Spirit and it wants to uh, exercise the gifts of the Spirit and the Spirit of God in us wants all of us to glorify the Lord. You know what our flesh wants to do though? The opposite, the exact opposite, word for word. It is in complete opposition. The book of Galatians chapter five speaks about this, this in, inner um, battle going on. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, 
so you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desire, sets its desires against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So that's why it's, it's, it's a constant daily struggle to honor God with our lives, because there's also this competing even though it's, a, it's, a, um, it's lost, the flesh does not have power over the spirit, but there's battle. There's a battle going on. There's, there's contrary desires going on in us. But what we need to remember is that positionally Jesus won. He has the victory over the power of sin in our lives, the power of the flesh. We share in that, but practically we're contending and we're, we're growing. We're striving to grow in holiness, meaning... We're trying to sin less and glorify God more. See, the devil and our flesh desire nothing more to stop or hamper our growth in holiness and sanctification, but the Spirit of God in us desperately wants to make us like Jesus. This is this idea of sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. Have you ever heard it said that we're works in progress as Christians? It's because we are. We're, we're, we're striving to daily become more like the Lord. Um, Wayne Grudem described sanctification like this. He said, Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. It's this idea of us denying and repenting and being freed from sin and walking in holiness and honor and our lives glorifying the Lord. And this is what Jesus is speaking about here. He's saying, be a servant and be freed of sin. Be a servant and be sanctified, be humble and be holy. And so for us this morning, as we, as we, as we read this, as we hear this, we need to ask ourselves, and I think it might start with this idea of, do we think of sin the way God thinks of sin? Do we treat it the same? Because if we don't, we're going to struggle with it more. If we don't treat it as the most evil, destructive disease that man has ever, ever encountered, and we treat it that way, then we'll, then we'll easily, more easily, fall into it and struggle with it. Right, think about it. We do just like with, with a natural, think of it as like the Ebola virus. Like the most destructive, deadly, incurable thing that's ever existed. What do you do? Well, you run, you get as far away as you can. You have nothing to do with it. If you have to be around it, then what happens? You are suited up to the nines. I mean, you are protected against this evil thing. This is the point that Jesus is trying to get to. Sin is even more destructive. So, so are we treating it that way? Are we treating sin the way God treats it? Or are we justifying and minimizing its wickedness and consequences? And the thing we really need to ask is, God, I want your heart to see sin as you do, but I also need your spirit. I need your spirit to strengthen me to walk in holiness, right? To, to maybe to reveal for us where we are in sin. And then we... Need to, need to respond to that and repent and be like, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me of that sin? Would you give me the strength not to walk in that? I want to turn from that sin and I want to turn to the Lord. That's repentance. 
And I hope you can see that even though there's strong language in this text this morning, it's the father heart of God seeing his children, knowing what their intended design is supposed to be. And he's saying, beware and be careful of the sin which wants to destroy you. I've given you my spirit and the power to withstand it. So walk now in victory, in holiness, as my servants. To end, I just want you guys to dwell on Romans 6, 6 through 13. Then we'll um, end. Romans 6, 6 through 13 just declaring the truth of what Jesus did. It says, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we, we, know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Verse 12. Do not let sin control the way you live. Do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead and now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for your loving kindness that reminds us of these truths. Thank you that your loving kindness leads us to repentance, Lord. It leads us to the place of coming and saying, Lord, I've, I've fallen short, but you've died so that I could have this life. And so I give you this, and I wanna live for you now. God, I pray that you would, you would help us to do that as we, as we worship you now, as we praise you for who you are and what you've done. We ask, Lord, that we would be able to commune with you and possibly repent or lay things down or, or, or ask for more strength to live out a life of holiness and servanthood. And God, that's our prayer. We wanna be your servants. You're our master, you're our Lord, you're our savior. And we wanna be a people after your own heart, empowered by your spirit to love and serve others the way that you loved and served us by dying on the cross. And so God, would you even speak to us and give us some tangible ways to do this at our jobs, with our friends, in our marriages, with our kids. Help us, Lord, to be a servant and to be like you. We want to grow. We want to grow in holiness and sanctification. We want to be more like Jesus. So do that, Lord. We can't do it on our own. We admit that we are prone to wander and that we are in need of strength. We thank you, Lord, for this time. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.